This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. It's becoming harder for brands to make these leaps and decisions, but for the retailers who are selling everything, the more and more data they have, the more they really can guess what people want. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick and mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes. Today I'm speaking with Renee Hartman. She's a best-selling author and advisor to startups in the consumer, retail, and technology sectors. Welcome, Renee. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. Absolutely. Well, you are a co-author of Next Generation Retail, How to Use New Technology to Innovate for the Future. So why did you write the book? Most obvious question in the world to start with. But. It's a good question. So we wrote the book. Um, we wrote it, let's see, it was September, uh, summer of 2022. And so it was kind of the um, sort of the tail effects of COVID. We're just kind of starting to be over. People were getting back to normal. Um, and, you know, we got approached by our publisher about, you know, really taking a look at taking stock of how the consumers changed in a post-COVID world and, you know, how technology has really enabled a lot of those changes. So looking at kind of coming out of COVID and how retailers can use technology to leapfrog, to innovate, to address these new consumer demands and needs. Okay, nice. Well, let's take a step back. When when you're your MBA at Duke, and by the way, you're in Portugal now, we'll hopefully touch on that, but what kind of technology was cutting edge when uh, you were getting your MBA? I mean, when I was getting my MBA, it was the first, I had lived in China before I went to business school and we were using, we were texting all the time then using, you know, SMS. And I remember when I first went to business school, um, that was the big thing was all the Americans were just learning how to text, right? It was just like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm t- I had uh, friends that were saying, you know, I've got a new girlfriend. She's texting me all the time. I'm not sure what to do about that. So that was the cutting edge was, was texting. <laughs> wow. It's a, it's a little different now, huh? Just a bit. Yeah. A little so bit different. let's. So how did you get from China to Duke to Portugal? What's that journey look like? It's been a, it's been a, it's been a route. I guess I've uh, enjoyed going to new places with a lot of energy. And I think all of those, you know, have that. Um, I spent about 10 years in China, um, first working with Ogilvy and Mather um, out of their Beijing office, doing investor relations and working with Chinese companies who are listing on NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. Um, and then I did my own startup in Shanghai um, with former Nike China executives. Um, we started a streetwear brand. So we you know, made apparel. We opened up retail stores. We did e-commerce back in the early days of e-commerce. Um, did a lot of grassroots marketing with artists and musicians and um, you know, kind of did a little bit of everything. So it was a, a good kind of trial by fire that was post my MBA of just you know, figure things out. Um, I was a COO. We raised funding and opened up 25 stores. So it was a good kind of... Uh, way to learn about retail, you know, spending, I remember uh, spending time with our VC, you know, 4 a.m. before opening with all of us, you know, cleaning out trash and merchandising the store. So it was a great um, kind of, you know, you talk about MBA, that was a great MBA of just getting retail, um, really learning how to run a retail chain myself and doing everything from, you know, manufacturing and design to um, retail leases and hiring and merchandising and marketing. So I learned a lot that way. And then um, moved back to the U.S. for about wait, 10 years. And then, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> and then what happened to the brand? Like we the sold brand it right we here. Sold, went, it, it's still around. We sold it to a local partner in China. Um, so it's, it's still, still, still kicking around. And uh, there's a lot of like T-shirts and hoodies and graphic, you know, uh, accessories, things like that. But more kind of a streetwear casual 
federal uh, brand. Um, and then moved back to the U.S. and have been working with brands and retailers for about 10 years on their global um, international strategy. So everything from east to west, um, you know, brands from Asia coming into the west and brands from the west going into Asia. So um, a lot of branding, marketing, social media, influencer work um, across different platforms. So I've been able to kind of take a lot of, you know, learnings from what's happening in Asia and bring them over to the West, um, which I think did actually, you know, inform a lot of things in the book when it comes to things like QR codes and live streaming and, you know, omni-channel retail. It's really been pretty developed in Asia. So and, uh, let's unpack for a second. So yeah. where do brands go wrong going to other countries? You know, it's it's Target. fascinating how Target went up to Canada. So many people crossed the border to shop in Target. Well, we should go to Canada. They left. Nordstrom, we're up in the same places that we know our customers are. They left. Yeah. Uh, and you hear stories all the time of, oh, they just didn't get their culture. Is it that simple an explanation? I mean, sometimes it is. I feel like sometimes it's small little things that make a big difference. You know, uh, like in China, one of the things that always happened was multi-brand retailers went into China and expected um, consumers to shop in a multi-brand environment. And they really don't. They're very brand led. They love single brand retail. Um, you know, I think it's really about adapting and it, it sounds easy and it sounds like a no brainer, but some of it, this, the nuances can be can be, you know, uh, as, as different as kind of, you know, what's important to a consumer, to the competitive landscape, to just the way people shop. Okay. And so you decide you get your MBA. Got my MBA, moved back to the U.S. Um, and, you know, worked with a bunch of different retailers and then recently moved over to Portugal. Um, and I think there's, uh, you know, really digging into the European landscape now. Um, there's nuances around European retail, which I find fascinating when you compare it to Asia and you compare it to the U.S., um, I think some of the things I'm seeing here is a lot more automation. Um, I was in the Brussels airport and I went to duty-free the other day and there's not a single person in it. You know, everything is self-serve. Um, it's a completely autonomous store in, in, even in the airport. We're seeing a lot more of that um, in Europe, you know, more self-checkout, more technology-enabled solutions. Um, and then the other thing about Europe that I think is fascinating from retail is uh, the, the way the regulations kind of lead things. So sustainability, for example, um, there's a lot more regulations around um, everything from product materials and chemicals to disposing of products. So within the next year or so, they're going to start requiring barcodes on all products. Like every battery needs to have a barcode so you can track if it's in a landfill or where it went after it was used. So I think in sustainability and some of these other areas, you're seeing a lot of regulation-driven innovation, which is a little different than in the U.S. Yeah, can't imagine this going to that level, but we might. I always think of, and who are we employing to go look through those landfills to find that barcode to scan? To yeah, do that, that's where technology is nice to have, right? Nobody wants to be the one doing it. Exactly. <laughs> it all sounds good until you get those devils in the details. Well, exactly. Exactly. you've got the pivotal moment of opening your own streetwear uh, stores. And what's another pivotal moment in just looking around at where we are in retail, because I think on the one side, we have people who just, this is just last year, everybody was screaming, it's all going to be the metaverse. It's all going to be the metaverse. And now it's like, well, maybe not, but it's all going to be AI. It's all going to be generative AI. It's going to kill us all. And it's Skynet's right around the corner, or uh, it's just here to help. So what are some pivotal moments you're seeing right now, you think, um, that are, are going to shape the way we certainly the way we shop and, and certainly the way the experiences we have in stores right now. 
I mean, I really do think that generative AI is kind of a game-changing technology. I think it's been, you know, you can definitely argue it's been overhyped, which I think it probably has to a certain extent. But that's kind of like saying the internet was overhyped back in the two, you know, back in the day. Like it, it is overhyped, but it also made a huge impact. So I think that um, you know, it's it's making an impact in small ways and big ways, right? So on the you know, on the small ways, um, everything from like product descriptions, writing product descriptions now is AI is very good at that. Emails, marketing copy, marketing images, um, you know, virtual try on, even things like, you know, the chat bots aren't quite there yet, but I think they're getting really interesting. And we're seeing kind of like a, almost a hybrid between human uh, sort of oversight plus AI, kind of putting the two together where you can really um, protect against things. So I think there are some super exciting things and not to mention, you know, better business decisions, merchandising, um, supply chain is a huge area to be unlocked, but I think still needs some more time. But then, you know, to your point, there are tons of risks that come with it. You know, it's uh, everything from privacy of your data and being able that you can keep data um, within the walls of your company um, to having things that are, are dangerous, that are, you know, that are false, that are wrong, that are misleading, that are, um, you know, discriminatory. You know, there's a lot of things that, that you know, you really do have to have the oversight of the AI um, to, have to really, you know, envision the power. So I think there's, there's a lot of pluses, but there are, you know, some watch outs for sure um, that I think everyone's kind of just starting to, to really understand. It's just kind of all happening in real time. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, when I think about my business, all both of my associates uh, use uh, uh, ChatGPT and stuff to make sure is this concise enough? Can you you know reorder this to make sense? Can we? In fact, we'll probably use this for our after our podcast to give us our uh, SEO thing for YouTube because that's not a real value add. That's kind of like great. Somebody can do it better, and it's fine. The challenge is, I think, for everybody to understand that you still have to have the thought. <laughs> you still have to have the right thought in and to be able to say, how does how does this work? So are there any things that you can see how AI is um, changing the way consumers shop? I mean, AI has been, you know, generative AI. We've had algorithms, certainly, but generative AI uh, revolutioning how customers shop. Any insights on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, a couple of different things. One is um, product discovery. So I think, you know, having smarter recommendations around the way you shop. So knowing, you know, one example I heard someone say is, you know, if you never buy a sleeveless shirt, then you're never going to be served a sleeveless shirt when you're looking at things, whether it's from search, whether it's from recommended products, the ability to really understand. And, and you know, I think one area we're seeing a lot of uh, development in is just analyzing and almost like social listening of what you've been doing in the past. So I think you and I may have talked about this, like, when you're looking for a pair of shoes online and you buy that pair of shoes and then you're getting ads served after you bought it, it's annoying. Like it's, you know, you feel like you're being watched. You feel like you're someone seeing and it's kind of creepy, but if you're able to be a little smarter about it and know, okay, you already bought these shoes. What would you come next? Do you need socks? Do you need, you know, are you going hiking? Are you going on a trip to have that smarter ability to really see what you're looking for and what your interests are? Now that is helpful. And that isn't so much creepy. It's something that's additive to your customer experience. So I think around, discovery recommendations and even customer service to a certain extent and the ability of, you know, some of the chatbots are getting pretty good at explaining things, giving you alternatives, recommending things. Um, you know, so I, I think this ability to, to help that discovery process when you're online, especially because, and to make it more like the offline experience because online, you know, one of the challenges online is it's been more, it, it's a little bit more challenging to have that discovery and that entertainment value that you get in the store um, AI can help with that and, and make it a little bit more personalized as well. But when it comes to getting a refund, I can't yell at AI. 
You can, I think. <laughs> I did, I did uh, ChatGPT. ChatGPT has yelled at me a couple of times with, uh, with some of the terminology I've used. So they, oh, they, yeah. don't, they don't take it. <laughs> yeah. I hate this thing. It's like, this document is too long. Try again. Like, oh, yeah, I you? Know. Well, I know we were talking about AI had uh, worked with Instacart and mm-hmm. uh, how that's worked with grocery. Can you kind of like fill us in on those kind of things? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Instacart's a great example um, of how they're using data in their business. Um, I know they just, you know, they just had their IPO not too long ago and they had, I forget the exact amount, but a, a substantial portion of their revenue is actually coming from retail media and retail data. And I think, you know, I used Instacart all the time during uh, the pandemic and I actually got kind of addicted to it even after the pandemic was over and I was ready to go to, to stores. I'm like, yeah, it's so easy. I, it already knows what I want. I can just replicate my order and it comes to my house really quickly. So I think, what was great about it is, you know, I like to drink cold brew and I like a certain kind of cold brew. So it would, when it served me coupons, it was always the exact same type of cold brew I like without sugar, without milk. It was the same things. It knew what I liked and it was able to serve me very targeted information because um, it knows what I bought and knows what I looked at. So I think that ability to take data and to personalize the experience and then honestly to turn around and sell it to all these um, brands that want information, you know, I think it, the social media landscape with the, you know, the cookie popocalypse and all the, the information about data, retailers are starting to have more data than anybody else. And the ability to like to mine those insights and then to sell that back to people, both from the, in the point of consumer insights, as well as media, um, that's actually becoming pretty profitable for retailers. Yeah. Well, they got to find something, right? They tried going after the, <laughs> making them all into land grabs. And then people were like, well, the land alone isn't going to make us. So what else? Yeah. We can, what else can we do? But you're right. You know, and that's what the, uh, I remember years ago um, saying that, you know, Amazon is so concerned with grocery because if I know it's in your grocery cart, I have a really good idea what's going on in the household. Absolutely. You're sick, okay. you're this, you're that, you, you have kids, you don't. Yeah. Uh, but it does, uh, you know, my thing is I get it, but it's kind of like I, little boomer talking here probably, but I remember like, for example, when I grew up in the 60s, you could have heard on the radio because that's all we had was you could heard country or Broadway or hard rock or pop or you name it. It was all out there. And that's what kind of gave us all of our choices as we got older. I just yeah. wonder as we get more and more tuned by AI that you know, you like Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Great. We're going to remix this with something else that sounds almost exactly like it. And and then if that's the world we're creating, how do you make way for people in that world? Because nobody's like that, Renee. Right. I I think there's a couple things. There was one, I don't know if you ever did this. There was a quiz. I think it was the New York times or somebody, they did a quiz where they showed you pictures of people's refrigerator and you were supposed to guess if they were Democrat or Republican based on what was in their refrigerator. And it was a, it was kind of a fun quiz, but honestly I was wrong like 90% of the time. Like you think you have these ideas about people and they're not necessarily true. So I think that is, there is, you know, a lot of opportunity for misconception, but on the other hand, I think the way the media has gone, you know, you, you mentioned radio or even like when I was growing up, it was like everybody watched friends and you had 25 million people watching friends on Thursday night and everybody had the same point of reference. Now you look at like, you know, a popular show like uh, Succession, really there's only a million people who watch that show. You know, it's really becoming like much narrower audiences. There's so much media and the way we consume it's gotten so, um, you know, compartmentalized and siloed that it is harder to make those connections. And I think brands find that too. You know, it's not so easy to do one thing and you hit everybody. Um, You do kind of have to target the message a little bit 
And one of the things we talk about in the book is really being inclusive. Um, I think that was one big thing that came out during COVID, whether it's, you know, based on you know the color of your skin, your gender, whether it's your political type, whether it's, are you living in the country or the city? You know, this ability to kind of reach all people and be inclusive, sizing, you know, able-bodied, that's a big thing. You know, do you have disabilities? All of these, these areas are something that I think brands are, are really struggling with because society has gotten so siloed, it is hard to reach everybody at one time. Well, and, and you think about going back to the time of Friends, Gap is riding high. Casual Fridays have come in. Wow, what a concept, <laughs> right? That was just so innovative. And yet a mass brand like a Gap, we've piled on for years saying they have no direction. We don't know what they stand for. And then they kind of clone themselves in Old Navy. Um, it would be hard for them to niche down, right? Because it is a broad category. I mean, uh, I think you'd be easier in in packaged goods. You know, Coke with vanilla is not that hard of a of a sell. But you know, Gap is now going to come out with as they did sheets at Walmart. Like what? <laughs> You're at the same time. You're you're we're skyloing things down. It's harder to break out of that place sure. that we you put yourself in. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, except for you look at like take someone like Amazon who's doing dishes and doing every possible thing you can imagine. You know that again, it goes back to I think the retailer knowing what sells. You know, you look even back at some of the the multi brand retailers like REI and some of these guys. They would start their private label because they knew, hey, this jacket sells well. Why don't I make one that looks like it? So it's almost like it's it's reverting back. So it's becoming harder for brands to make these leaps and decisions. But for the retailers who are selling everything, at the more and more data they have, the more they really can guess what people want. I love that. And with Generative AI, the guess has got to be on a little bit more data. So, um, you know, we had talked about personalization retail like a football stadium. Yeah. Can you explain that metaphor a little bit for us? Yeah, we had, uh, so there was, I was at a conference in Amsterdam, uh, a FinTech conference, and they were talking about, you know, new types of technology you can use for checkout, for verification, verifying your identity. And they talked about a pilot program that's happening in a football stadium where everything is done by facial recognition. So you're, you're, you don't even need a mobile phone to walk in. You don't need a, you don't need a wallet. You don't need a bag. Everything's done by facial recognition. You go in that way for your ticket. You can pay at the at the snack bar. And, you know, we talked a little bit about how for some people, for me, I'd love that, frankly, right? Like I don't need to carry anything. I don't need to worry about it. That's great. Other people, that sounds like a dystopian nightmare, right? The ability for somebody to be following you everywhere, knowing where you are, you know, even though, frankly, a lot of this is happening kind of without our knowledge half of the time anyways. Um, we don't want to know that though, right? We don't want to know. So to some people, that's horrifying. And to other people, that's, that's, you know, liberating. You don't have to carry anything. So it's like, how do you and the same thing happens with self-checkout at retailers, right? Some people love that. Other people find it horrifying and annoying and difficult. So, you know, I've seen now, you know, some of the retailers are doing, you know, assisted self-checkout, just walk out or a cashier, you know, there's different ways, or maybe some it's pay with an app and go out. But having, you know, Ikea is a good example. They have multiple ways you can check out because you're personalizing the experience for, for the person who wants it. Not everybody wants that same experience. And some people like having as much technology as possible and some people hate it. So where do you think we're going to go uh, with privacy? Because it seems to your point, going back to Europe, they're doing a bigger job than America is. I mean, Absolutely. California has got some stringent things they put in place, but um, the EU is really uh, worried about it. Is there going to be a consensus? It's interesting. This is the month that Apple came out with a new iPhone and 
had to bend to the EU and say, well, I guess we have to get rid of our little lightning port that only we had. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it seems like the EU has it has some muscle. Uh, I think I think this is one of those areas that it is going to be government dictated, to be honest, because from the company's perspective, there's always going to be a, a desire to go as, as far as possible. So another good example is in uh, in China, there's facial recognitions everywhere because it's you know, it's it's uh, it's there are no there's certainly no laws against it. It's it's used um, widely. But there's one, one example of uh, there was an area that was people were using too much toilet paper in the, in the bathroom stalls. And so they had a facial recognition that when you got down, you got like five squares and then it wasn't until the face changed again that you got more squares. It's like, that's very, that's very intense. (laughs) I don't think anybody wants that level of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, like sort of intrusion, but I do think it's one of these things that, um, you know, it is kind of a public good. And I think it does have to be mandated because without any laws, you know, everyone's going to go as far as you can because, there's always somebody who wants it. There's always somebody who'll buy it. So I do think this is one of those areas. And the same with sustainability to a certain extent. Some of these are, they are public, kind of like public goods that are not, there's not a uh, profit motive for anybody to follow it. So it's almost like this is where the collective good needs to come in. So I do think privacy is one of those where, and, you know, just like with, um, with cars in the U.S., you know, if California is the most stringent, then the rest of the country usually has to follow, right? Just like emissions and car, you know, restrictions. So everyone's going to have to follow, I think, the most stringent. And maybe sometimes, you know, things like Europe will, will filter back to America. Um, but, you know, personally, as a consumer, I love the fact that the EU is making, you know, Apple, I don't need 20 different charging cords for my Apple products. You know, like that is kind of a nice thing for me to have. But I can see why if you're Apple, it's nice to sell a bunch of other extra cords. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, great. Before we continue, we love our loyal listeners. We're going to take a little break. And uh, I'd appreciate it if you'd do me a favor and give us a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. And we'll return after this word from SalesRx online retail sales training. Hey, it's Bob again. I'm not only your host, but also the founder of the SalesRx online retail sales training program. How many sales that should have been yours walked out your front doors today? You know, with shoppers being more discerning about where and when they shop, you need to convert more lookers to buyers. And SalesRx is the perfect solution to make training memorable. It's bite-sized. It can fit easily into your schedules. Don't tell me you don't have time to train. If you can give them time to take a break, you have time for them to train. Now, the training builds from some of the quickest ways to engage shoppers to the most advanced. Everything is planned so you can implement your sales training program with a click of a button. And there's a reason we're on four continents training thousands because SalesRx is scalable. Everybody learns the same new skills that will grow your sales. In fact, 83% of users report a double-digit increase in their sales within six months. Wouldn't you like that to be your story? Visit SalesRx to learn more and set up a call with me to see how we can help. That's S-A-L-E-S-R-X dot com. Now back to the broadcast. And we're back with Renee Hartman, author of Next Generation Retail, How to Use New Technology to Innovate for the Future. So what key takeaways from your book, Next Generation Retail, um, should retailers adopt right now? What's something like... You're ringing the bell like, are you listening or you're shaking them up? I mean, I think for retailers, the message that we always give them is, you know, try, start start simple and just start and do something. I think retailers 
suffer a lot from kind of, you know, what is it? Paralysis analysis, by paralysis by analysis or analysis by paralysis. I forget which one, but the idea of I'm going to, you know, it's, it's not when you really get down to it, technology innovation is not the main business of any retailer. And sometimes it's seen as kind of this annoyance. It's something else I'm going to have to do. We need to spend more time looking at it. So I think, you know, one thing we always talk to companies about is, you know, try a pilot program. It doesn't always have to be you're going to roll out everything around every single store, but try something, start small, and then build on that success and then bring that throughout the organization. So I think, you know, people wait a long time. And by the time they wait, they, they've sort of missed some of the, the opportunities with some of these new technologies. So, you know, one good example is live streaming. Um, live stream shopping is one that, that we talk about in the book. Um, and is you know it's super easy to do. You literally could just have your store staff you know use their mobile phone and start start streaming out to, to out to your uh, out to their own customers. You can even just be doing it to your own customers. And we're seeing retailers you know really increase the um, their sales within the store by just having their store staff go online and start start broadcasting out. That takes almost no cost. You don't need a studio. You don't need a lot of talent. Those are kind of some easy wins that really. What's the harm in trying? Give it a try, pilot things out and see how they work. And there's a lot of examples like that that don't have to be huge investments, reworking your entire systems, but they're just small ways to get started. Well, when you talk about reworking systems, I'm reminded of our call earlier. Um, we were talking about technological barriers and how that might be generation-based. And um, one of the things we had talked about is how uh, the frontline younger worker is having to help older generations, which is very different than certainly when I was in retail many years ago, the challenge I've got. So what, how do you address that? And maybe you can take us into what the problem is. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's a good example. I think of, you know, a lot of these big retailers, like take a grocery store, you know, you have the frontline staff who are working sometimes with an older customer, sometimes with just someone who's not that tech savvy and they've got to show them, how do you download the app? How do you scan it? How do you pay? What do you use to get through the process? And they're kind of becoming like a tech support without really their permission. That's not what they were hired to do. Um, you know, as anyone who's ever been, you know, taught, especially, you know, I have my own 14 and 12 year old kids. Anytime they ever teach me new technology, there's always a lot of exasperation on both sides. And I think it's the same thing in the retail experience. So it's not necessarily what somebody wants to do is come in. They just want to pay for their stuff and get out. They don't want to tech lesson, right? So I think what ends up happening is you do kind of, you know, sometimes the the staff itself is resistant to the technology changes because they're the ones who have to deal with the customer, right? So I think this ability, like we talked about, of giving different choices um, and providing ways that the customer can understand it without it all having to be one-on-one training, whether it's signage, whether it's incentives, you know, download the app for coupons or things that you feel like you're getting something out of it. Um, versus just this like one more step you have to do, it can it can do it can erode the customer experience to a certain extent because they get annoyed and your staff is annoyed too. So that's I think you know a good reason why retailers sometimes are hesitant to put new technology out, which I understand. If it's causing too many barriers, maybe it's not worth it. And that's why I think pilot programs are a good example. And then the other thing is just really involving your store staff in the decisions and in the technology rollout. It's not just something that's handed to them and they do. It's involving them in the process and learning from them and getting their input ahead of time. Um, so it's not just, you know, one more thing they need to do that they don't want to do. Yeah, because it's adding friction to everybody's day. Yeah. Now, you yeah. chose the Starbucks app because you liked how uh, efficient it is. I, I, I'm the same way. It's like I was always like, what a stupid thing. Why would I want to pay only Starbucks app? I got my cash and my credit card. Yeah. And it's like, well, they got their little games I play every now and then or my little points. And it does all those surprise and delight your customer in a 
pretty seamless way. And then ordering it online and I mean, ordering it and then having it and when I'm at an airport and I see 60 people and I just order it from there. And I mean, there's real time saving there. Absolutely. And that's a real value. Like to someone, you know, I, I think I was telling you, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a coffee snob. So for the longest time, I didn't even want to go to Starbucks. I wanted to go to the cool, you know, um, local coffee shop. But now I go to Starbucks all the time because simply because of that, I don't want to wait 20 minutes. I can do it ahead of time. Typically, by the time I get there, it's ready. It's, you know, it's a very good customer experience. So I think, you know, it goes back to what does a customer want? And in that situation, the customer does not want to wait, you know, and this, this solves that problem and makes it really frictionless. And once, yeah, the first time you had to do it, it was an annoying thing to do to buy the gift card, to go through the whole process. But once you got it, it's pretty easy now. So I think there is a little bit of a barrier that first time probably was hard to get us to do it. But then at, once we learned the benefit and saw the utility of it, we keep using it. Nice. Maybe it'll be when we have flying cars. I'm hoping. So looking forward, what excites you as we come to the close of our time together? Looking forward, what excites you most about the future of retail? I mean, I have to say, I think there's, you know, a couple things. Um, one, I think the idea of more of the omni-channel experience, I think this has been something we've been talking about for 10, 20 years. Um, I think it is becoming more of a reality now. And some of it is through like really small things that the, the pandemic brought. So like QR codes, um, QR code is a great gateway between online and offline. Um, it's a simple way you can scan something and you can get access to alternative, you can get access to alternative reality, you can get access to apps, you can do all kinds of pay. Um, so this ability to just kind of bridge seamlessly between online and offline, I think is something that um, will really enable a lot of really cool things to happen, whether that's, you know, um, things that are happening in the virtual world or in the physical world, this ability to kind of link those two experiences and have it happen seamlessly. So you could be getting targeted, um, you know, recipe suggestions when you're in a certain grocery aisle, you could be getting, um, you could filter for, you have celiac disease and it's, it's, you know, putting recommendations in for you. So this ability to kind of really have that real omni-channel experience, we're not quite there yet, but this ability to provide you information that as you're going through the, the retail experience, you're having something that's additive to the experience and not just walking through and, and doing an errand. And I think that one of the things the pandemic taught me a lot was the idea that being in retail, you know, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a discovery process. It's supposed to be. And, and I really felt that after I didn't, sh I didn't go, you know, indoors for almost a year, I think during the pandemic. And then when I finally did going shopping was, it just seemed like such a breath of fresh air, like discover things and pull them off the, the shelves and to really experience that again, when I had been doing everything online, which is click, 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 here's what I want. Um, so it's less of an errand and more of an experience. And I think that omni-channel will make it a little more that way. There's lots of other ways to do it, but I think that is one, one key that could really crack the code. Nice. Uh, so before we go, name of the podcast is tell me something good about retail. So this is your moment. Tell me something good about retail, Renee. <laughs> That's the hardest question you've given me. <laughs> I think the good thing about retail is it's always changing. You know, I think it's very, um, it's local to a certain extent and that it changes everywhere you go. So you really do have different experiences, but to the same extent, I think it's always modernizing and trying new things. So I think that the changeability of retail, I think is what's, what's so exciting about it. Sweet. Well, I appreciate you joining us today uh, and your book, Next Generation Retail. It is out now, how to use technology and innovate for the future. And uh, thanks for your insights and we'll see you in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a thanks pleasure. You've been listening to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. 
As a listener, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. Thanks for being with us. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. To virtually bring Bob to all of your crew and associates, check out www.salesrx.com.